All right, guys. Uh, it's been a while, but welcome back to uh, AP Human Geo in 20 Minutes. I'm your host, Mr. Linder. Uh, this episode is going to be a little bit different in that it is not 20 minutes. Um, it is going to be uh, much longer. Um, we'll see how much longer. Don't know off the top of my head. Could just possibly go on forever, which would be everyone's nightmare. But Try to get you guys ready for tomorrow's uh, AP exam as best I can. So, without further ado, uh, let's dive in. So, unit one. Um, unit one is a whole bunch of random stuff that we need to know and we need to understand so that we can start to get through the course together. So, um, we looked at things like maps, places, and regions. Um, a place would be a specific point on Earth. A region is a bunch of places that have some things, some distinctive things that link them. Um, we talked about scale and how scale can be important, uh, whether we're talking about something um, that is as large as the world or as small as um, Stonebridge. Um, we also talked about actually what a map scale means and a small scale map. Um, means the smaller the number. So that would be like a whole picture of the earth, whereas a large scale map um, would be a, uh, a larger number um, on, the, uh, on the scale ratio. Um, so that'd be like a zoomed in map of a city or something like that. Um, we talked about different projections uh, and the fact that pro map projections are never accurate because you're taking a three-dimensional object and you're projecting it onto a two-dimensional space. Um, so we talked about uh, different types of maps, like the Mercator, which distorts at the poles, uh, the Azimuthal, which is a polar projection. Um, we talked about like a cartogram, which usually shows data, um, the, the size of countries based on whatever data is showing, oftentimes a population cartogram, like the one I have in my classroom. Um, with choropleth maps that use color, isoline maps that use lines, uh, topographic maps like uh, the map of the DC metro. Um, I think of other, uh, we looked at the good homolocene map, which looked like it had four kind of, uh, used at the bottom of it. Um, we looked at the Robinson map, which is like a merging of the Mercator and some other maps, um, and mental maps, obviously, which are maps that we, we use, um, in our heads to get us to different places. Um, we talked about toponyms and place names. Those are place names and why certain place names are where they are. So if places are like Saint this or Saint that, then usually it might have been settled by Catholics or something like that. Um, Bismarck in North Dakota. Uh, Bismarck is a German um, name, so it was settled by German people that lived there. And we talked about site, the physical character of a place, the exact description of a place, situation. Um, is a place, uh, location of a place relative to other places. It's a uh, comparison. Um, which is about the cultural landscape, which is what our book is titled, uh, defined by Carl Sauer. Carl Sauer is a guy who pops up uh, throughout our course as the area of Earth modified by human habitation. Um, so it's how human beings modify their landscape and make their landscape fit their cultural norms and beliefs and uh, needs. Um, we talked about different types of regions, formal, functional, and vernacular. Uh, formal lines on a map. Functional is usually based around a node or a focal point like a city. Vernacular is fuzzy. It's based on cultural identity. People disagree on where it is and why it is in certain cases. Uh, we talked about the difference between environmental determinism and possibilism. Environmental determinism is the belief that the physical environment causes social development. 
Um, whereas possibilism uh, goes against that. It's the belief that the environment limits certain actions of people, but people are the ones that ultimately can overcome their environment. Uh, it's why you have a city like Las Vegas that exists in the middle of the desert, uh, whereas with native populations out in that area, you would have like adobe houses or something like that, which would be more environmental determinism. Um, we uh, began to talk about globalization, a process that involves the entire world and results in making something worldwide in scope. Um, globalization is something that we get into a lot in our class, whether it is talking about global trade or how um, you know different countries are in uh, different stages of the demographic transition model, which we'll get to in a little bit. Um, but globalization has definitely been a theme that has gone throughout our, our course. Um, we also started to talk about diffusion and the difference between relocation diffusion, which is pretty easy as a spread of an idea through the physical movements of people, uh, versus expansion diffusion and the different categories within expansion diffusion. So remember within that we have hierarchical diffusion, the spread of something through elite classes of society. Uh, contagious diffusion, spread of something rapidly through all levels of society, like something going viral on Twitter. And stimulus diffusion, the spread of an underlying principle, even if the char characteristic itself fails to diffuse. We've used the example of um, uh, Apple uh, kind of being the first one to invent like the touchscreen phone. Um, and everyone doesn't own an uh, iPhone today, but they do have that touchscreen technology, whether it's a Samsung or on their Chromebooks or whatever. Um, in our next unit, uh, we got into population and migration and discovering and understanding why the world's population is distributed where it is. Um, two thirds of the world's population live in four main regions, East Asia, South Asia, Southeast Asia, and Europe. Uh, we also had two smaller, uh, regions of the world that also are growing, uh, rapidly and have large populations. That's uh, the West coast of Africa and the Northeast United States. Uh, which is where we are, the Boswash Corridor. Um, we're talking about different type of densities. Arithmetic density is the total number of people uh, divided by total land area. Physio physiological density, total number of people divided by total arable land. That's basically whether you can feed your food or not. And agricultural density is the total number of farmers divided by total, total arable land area. Um, remember, all these uh, statistics have strengths and weaknesses um, with arithmetic density. Remember, in the United States, we have something like I can't remember. It's like 70 people per square kilometer or 30 people per square. I, I can't remember. But either way, that's a misleading statistic because in downtown Manhattan, New York City, it's like 70,000 people per square kilometer, whereas in the middle of uh, you know Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, it's like 0.1 people per square mile. So that can be a misleading statistic. Um, we did talk about a lot of statistics, however, in this uh, chapter and in, in, in this unit. Um, crude birth rate, uh, number of live births per uh, 1,000 people per year. Crude death rate, just the opposite of that. Uh, natural, natural increase rate, uh, percent by which a population grows in a year, um, not including migration. Doubling time, the number of years needed to double a population. If you have a very short um, or small doubling time, that means your population is growing rapidly. If you have a large doubling time or a high doubling time, it means it's growing very slowly. Uh, and that's 70 over the natural increase rate. And remember, to get the natural increase rate, we just take crude birth rate minus crude death rate, and we divide it by 10. Um, total fertility rate, the average number of births a woman will have in her lifetime. Infant mortality rate, uh, number of deaths um, uh, by infants under one year old compared to number of live births. Life expectancy, obviously, how long you're going to live, um, and that sort of thing. 
Um, we also get into uh, our first models in this unit, and by far one of the most important models in this course is the demographic transition model. Um, the demographic transition model uh, is broken down into five stages. Um, in stage one, we have high death rates, high birth rates, uh, which means little growth. Um, this is talking about the vast majority of human history, really up until the Industrial Revolution. Um, we had empires like you know the Roman Empire and uh, we had empires in Iran and China and India and Africa and all over the world. But those empires uh, waxed and waned, and no one was able able to really um, you know continue to grow over a long sustained period of time. Um, so that's most of stage one: high birth rates, but really really high death rates. Um, stage two: uh, that's when we start to see population growth. Uh, birth rate stays really really high but the death rate starts to drop. Um, and the big reason for this is we have uh, more food. Um, we have better hygiene. Um, we are start to understand like germ theory and things like that. Um, and so people are having the same number of kids, but now instead of having 10 kids and only two of them living to adulthood, now people are having 10 kids and five of them are living to adulthood. It's also where you start to see rapid industrialization in places like Great Britain, Germany, the United States. Uh, stage three, um, this is where... Uh, Death rate continues to go down, again, because of those advances we talked about, but birth rates also start to come down. Uh, because for, for the first time in human history, um, people uh, started to realize that um, for uh, ch children were not an economic asset for everybody. Um, if you still lived a rural uh, agrarian lifestyle, then children were an asset. But people that lived in cities um, started to realize that children were not economic assets. And so people started to have fewer um, fewer kids. And it wasn't just for economic reasons either. But uh, stage three is when people start to have fewer kids, but there is still a gap. There's still a big gap between birth and death rates, which means population is still growing, but the rate is slowing. Um, and then finally, we have uh, stage four. Um, I'm sorry, not finally, because we have stage five as well. Stage four is where we have low growth. Um, birth and death rates are almost equal, which means population is not growing. Um, population is high because of what happened in stage two and stage three, but population is not growing. And then finally, we have stage five, um, especially in a lot of European countries where natural increase rate um, has steadily dropped. Total fertility rate for women is beneath 2.1. Remember, 2.1 is the number is replacement level rate where you need to replace your population. But in a lot of those countries, it's fallen to 1.8, 1.7, 1.6. 1 and so uh, in countries like that, we started to see the population decrease. But probably the best example of a stage five country today would be the country of Japan. Um, we looked a lot at uh, population pyramids in this unit or age-sex ratios. Um, remember, it's uh, looking at um, where a population is at a given point in time. Usually with a wider base and a skinny top, you were talking about uh, stage one or two of the demographic transition. Uh, if it's roughly equal throughout and then gets skinny at the top, uh, you're looking probably at a stage uh, four, maybe a stage three country. And if you're looking at a country that's actually wider, closer to the top than it is at the bottom, you're looking at a country that might be going through stage five of the demographic transition. Remember, on each side, we have one side that's men, one side that's women. Um, so you can see where things like World War II or a disease or plague or something like that have uh, wiped out. Um, portions of the population. You can also see where there's a baby boom, uh, like in the United States with the baby boomer generation who are now entering their 50s, 60s, and 70s. Um, I talked about the dependency ratio, the number of people who are too old or too young to work. 
Um, remember, youth dependency ratio means that you, a high youth dependency ratio means you have a lot of really, really young people. Um, a high elderly dependency ratio means you have a lot of um, really old people. Um, finally, we talked in this unit about, uh, or in this chapter about why the Earth might face an overpopulation problem. We talked about Thomas Malthus, who was very, very negative about population growth and believed that um, food would not be able to keep pace with that. Um, however, he was wrong about that. And as we grew, we our capacity to develop food resources uh, grew as well. But there are people, neo-Malthusians, who would say that uh, countries that are especially in stage two have a huge uh, strain on their food supply. There are about a billion people that go to bed hungry every night. There is outstripping of other resources beyond food. There's not adequate medical care in stage two countries around the world. Um, there's not adequate um, uh, clean water, um, clean air, uh, all these things um, that play into keeping the population in check. And so the neo-Malthusians would say that Malthus was not completely wrong. We also talked about the epidemiological transition. Um, that is how uh, people die in each stage of the demographic transition. So in stage one, it was famine, it was uh, plague, things like that. Um, stage two is where you had things like industrial cities like cholera that would wipe people out. Um, stage three and four is where you started to see the elimination of those infectious diseases and you started to see people dying from heart attacks and cancer and um, heart disease and that sort of thing. Um, and we've continued that in, in stage five as well. Um, we also, in this unit, talked about migration and why people move. Um, remember, emigration, you are exiting. E, emigration, you are le leaving a location. Immigration, you're going into a new location. Uh, net migration is just the difference between people coming into your country and people leaving your country. Um, we also talked about some uh, laws from Ravenstein, um, laws like people are more willing to travel short distances. Every migration flow creates a counterflow. Usually people that migrate are uh, young, single men. Um, those are all some of Ravenstein's laws. We also talked about push factors, uh, reasons that people are going to want to leave their present location, and pull factors, something that induces them to move to a new location. The biggest reason that people move anytime, anywhere is money. People move because of jobs. Whether that is moving halfway around the world or around the block, uh, people usually move for jobs, better pay, that sort of thing, whether those are push or pull factors. And that would be part of um, economic push and pull factors. We also talked about cultural ones, uh, which gets into forced migration, um, usually because of war, political unrest, something like that. That's where you get refugees, people who uh, flee for fear of persecution, whether that's religious persecution or ethnic persecution. Then we talked about environmental um, push and pull factors as well. People leaving because of flooding, people wanting to go south because it's warmer. Um, those are environmental push and pull factors. Um, we talked about intervening obstacles, something that might get in the way, such as something physical like mountains or something political like the process of getting a visa or a green card. Um, the differences between voluntary and forced migration. Again, uh, forced migration, the migrant is compelled to move due to cultural pressures. Um, we also talked about internal migration, interregional migration uh, from one region to another versus intra-regional, moving within one region of the country. Um, we talked about the migration transition model with a guy named Wilbur Zielinski. Uh, in stage one, there's a little migration. You're chasing, uh, chasing food and that sort of thing. Um, stage two is when your population is rapidly growing, so people are leaving your country, and uh, there's a lot of international migration. 
And when you're a stage three and four country, uh, that's where people move more within your country. It's inter internal. Um, that's also where your country becomes a destination for migrants. People want to go to your country if you're a stage three and stage four. Um, more people are leaving uh, to go to places like North America and Europe. Again, those are stage three and stage four countries, and they are leaving places in Asia and Africa. Um, in the United States, uh, we've had a lot of migratory periods. We obviously had a big one um, in, early on in the 1700s with lots of Europeans coming to settle and lots of uh, slaves coming from Africa. Um, we also had big groups from um, Ireland and Germany and Western Europe in the mid to, uh, to late 1800s. Late 1800s to the early 1900s is where we got a lot of people from Eastern Europe. Um, that's where we started to see the first quota laws and caps on migration. In um, the 1970s, we saw a lot of uh, Vietnamese and Asian migrants. And more recently, we've seen more migrants from places like Mexico and India. Um, we've talked about the difference between um, undocumented immigrants, um, individuals who enter the U.S. without proper documents, versus uh, people who are um, refugees or seeking asylum status who are uh, claiming that they cannot go back to their homeland for fear of persecution. Um, remember, we talked about chain migration, the migration of people to a specific location because relatives or members of the same nationality previously migrated there. That's oftentimes how you get ethnic neighborhoods where uh, people who are of the same ethnicity uh, tend to flock um, to one another. Uh, again, I've talked about the word quotas. is the maximum limits on the number of people who can immigrate to the U.S. from one country in a year. And that started in the uh, early 1900s, specifically limiting Eastern Europeans. Uh, we talked about brain drain, where um, talented, uh, scholarly individuals from uh, usually uh, stage two or stage three countries leave. They go to stage four or stage five countries for education or work, and they do not return. And so these are the usually more talented um, people from those countries that leave there. Um, we also talked about guest workers, citizens of poor countries who temporarily obtain dangerous, low-paying jobs in NBCs that permanent citizens refuse to accept. Uh, there's a lot of that in the United States, but there's definitely a lot more of it in Europe and in places like uh, Qatar in uh, in the Middle East. Ms. Graham, hello. Just recording my review podcast for AP Human Geography tomorrow. Anything you'd like to say to our Human Geography students? Good luck, everybody. All right, so um, continuing on, uh, finishing up Unit 2, um, migration within regions of a country. Uh, Countries that are in stage two, typically you see people moving from rural areas to urban areas, mainly for jobs as those agricultural uh, jobs start to get um, taken up by uh, mechanization. And then within MDCs, you usually see people moving from urban areas to suburban areas. Um, we've started to see, to a degree, counter-urbanization in some MDCs where people move from urban areas to rural areas. It's a lot easier. Um, because of uh, like telecommuting and, and that sort of thing. Um, but more commonly, uh, nowadays, people are actually moving back into cities. All right, uh, moving on. Unit three was culture. I'm talking about folk and pop culture, religion, language, ethnicity. Um, a couple important vocab words, a habit or repetitive act that a particular individual group performs. A custom is a repetitive act a particular group performs. Folk culture, the culture traditionally practiced primarily by small, homogeneous groups living in isolated rural areas. Pop culture, the culture found in large heterogeneous societies that share certain habits despite differences in other personal characteristics. Now, this is where homogeneous and heterogeneous can be uh, kind of conflicting to a degree. Popular culture is, again, is across heterogeneous societies, meaning that 
people from different backgrounds um, like pop culture. But that pop culture is all the same. It is uh, the culture itself is homogeneous. So pop culture is prevalent across societies, people that are different, people that are heterogeneous. But that culture itself is actually homogeneous. So McDonald's is pop culture. Blue jeans are pop culture. Um, anything with social media, that's pop culture. Um, customs originate at a hearth. And then we have, again, talked about um, different types of diffusion that allow it to move. Usually with folk culture, it's moving from relocation diffusion. Pop culture, it's diffusing through um, contagious diffusion, hierarchical, hierarchical diffusion, and that sort of thing. Um, folk cultures are usually uh, clustered in isolated places. You've got like Appalachian groups. Um, you've got the Cajuns down in uh, Louisiana. Um, you've got the Amish in Pennsylvania and Indiana and Ohio. Uh, you've got Native American groups out in the, uh, in the West. Um, popular culture is more widely distributed. Uh, it varies from time to, time to time over a given place. Um, it's not the same. Um, it changes much, much quicker than folk culture does. Um, and usually it, you know, pop culture is around, um, you know, high technology, globalization, and uh, that sort of thing. Uh, blue jeans are a good example of pop culture, westernization, and the popularity of Western media, especially American media. Um, food preferences, you know, we have national chains now and that sort of thing. Whereas, you know, certain parts of the country, you're going to find folk culture, like you're going to find uh, different foods in the South, you're going to find barbecue, um, you're going to find different, you know, like uh, lobster up in the Northeast, and we got crab in, in Maryland and, and Virginia. Um, so you'll find much more specific foods to these specific areas compared to like chain restaurants and that sort of thing, which are more pop culture. Um, television and the internet have definitely diffused pop culture, uh, around the world. Um, again, American culture really, really is, um, pop culture, but anywhere that has TV that has the internet, um, pop culture, Western American culture has diffused there. Um, as the TV and the internet continue to spread and spread and spread, folk cultures are at risk of, uh, you know, kind of going away. It's the same thing with, with language. We sort of see language, uh, languages die out as English has become uh, more and more popular. Um, pop culture also has a damaging impact on the environment. Uh, it's less considerate of physical features. Pop culture would be then more possibilism and things like that, uh, whereas folk culture is more uh, environmental determinism. Um, with, uh, culture, we also have language. Um, so we learned that English, uh, actually did not originate on the British Isles. It originated with, um, the Celts who arrived there, um, spoke the first types of English. And then eventually we had the, uh, the Angles, the Saxons, the Jutes, um, these, uh, <clears throat> Viking groups that invaded England and spread kind of their more Germanic language. I remember English is part of, uh, the Germanic, Germanic language branch, um, so it's related to other Germanic languages uh, like German and Dutch. Um, you also have other major language branches uh, like the Romance language branch that has uh, French and Italian and Spanish and Latin. Um, as uh, America and uh, England you know, kind of separated over time and their populations became separate, different words uh, emerged and different dialects emerged. So... Um, we speak the same language as people in Great Britain, but it is a different English. They speak British English, and we speak American English. And there's differences in vocab, there's differences in grammar, there's differences in pronunciation as well. We also have different dialects across the United States. 
Um, it's kind of easy to say, oh, we've got like a northeastern one and a southern one and that sort of thing. But really, um, even sometimes city to city, uh, there are differences. Um, Pittsburgh has a very unique uh, dialect. Uh, uh, Charleston, South Carolina has a very unique dialect. So does uh, Savannah, Georgia, Boston, Massachusetts, New York, New York. Um, so we have those differences across our country as well. Um, we also talked about uh, the breakdown in languages. So um, you've got uh, a language family, which is a collection of languages related to a common ancestor. We are part of the Indo-European language family. Then below family is a branch. So again, we are part of the Germanic branch. The other major branches are Indo-Iranian, where you've got Hindi and Farsi and that sort of thing. We talked about Romance, Balto-Slavic, where you have Russian, Polish, Czech, and all those. Then you have a language group below that, and then you have a language dialect and on down. Um, the other big language family in the world is Sino-Tibetan. Um, that's where you get Mandarin Chinese from. Uh, Indo-European is the most widely spoken for sure, but Sino-Tibetan and especially Mandarin Chinese is the most widely spoken first language in the world. For second language, it's not people's native language. The most common language is English, but most people, um, if you had to take a poll of most people in the world what their first language is, it would be Mandarin Chinese because China is the most populated country in the world. Um, you got the Afro-Asiatic language family, which is going to be in North Africa, the Middle East, places like that. Um, Austronesian, which is Southeast Asia and some of the islands around like Australia. Niger-Congo is Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, you've got Dravidian, which is in India. Um, you got uh, some other smaller ones like Nilo-Saharan, American Indian, uh, Japanese, Korean. Those are all uh, smaller language families. Um, people like to try to preserve their language because it preserves their culture. A lot of times people feel that if they lose their language, then they lose their culture. And a lot of times that happens if you look back in history and you look at people that have been conquered, as those people's languages have died out, oftentimes their culture has died out with them and the conquering culture um, has, has introduced their language. Uh, so we talked about extinct languages, languages that are no longer used, no longer spoken. Um, uh, lingua franca, a universally understood language, a globally understood language. English is a lingua franca. We've also talked about a pidgin language. A simplified version of a lingua franca, we, we just use basic vocab, like if you're visiting a European country or something like that, and you don't speak the language and neither do they, but you can you know, kind of uh, put a couple words together, um, that would be, that'd be an example of a pidgin language. Um, within culture, we also talked about religion and where different types of religion are distributed and what those types of religions are. So we talked about two main ones, uh, universalizing and ethnic. Universalizing religions have tend to be global and appeal to all people. Ethnic religions are primarily appeals to one group of people living in one place. It's uh, closely tied to a geography of a region. Um, beneath a religion, we have a branch, a large fundamental division within a religion. So within Christianity, we've talked about three branches. We've talked about Catholicism uh, with the great schism. We talked about uh, Eastern Orthodoxy. And then with the Protestant Reformation, the Protestant branch. Beneath the branch, you have denominations. So within the Protestant branch of Christianity, there are thousands of denominations. There is Lutheran, there is Calvin, there is Methodist, there is Baptist, there is Evangelical, and on and on and on. Beneath that, you have a sect, a relatively small group that has broken away from an established denomination. Uh, Christianity is the largest uh, religion in the world with over 2 billion followers. It is not the fastest growing anymore, though. The fastest growing would be Islam. Uh, and that is because of birth rates. It really doesn't have a whole lot to do with um, missionary work or anything like that. Uh, both Christianity and Islam are uh, universal, universalizing religions. Uh, within Christianity, a billion of the two billion followers are Roman Catholic. 
Uh, within Islam, we talked about two major branches. Uh, we talked about uh, Shia and Sunni. Um, most Muslims are Sunni Muslims, and we do find a lot of followers in the Middle East, but the most populous uh, Muslim country in the world is Indonesia, followed by Pakistan, India, and Bangladesh. Um, we've got the five pillars of Islam, including the, including the Hajj, which is the um, pilgrimage to Mecca, praying five times a day, fasting during Ramadan. Um, we've also got the universalizing religion of Buddhism, which we mainly find in China and Southeast Asia, although its hearth was in Northern India. Within Buddhism, we've got the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, Nirvana, uh, the Buddha, who is um, Siddhartha Gautama, who eventually became the Buddha when he achieved enlightenment. Um, and then we've got some ethnic religions that we talked about. We talked about Hinduism, which is the world's third largest religion with over 800 million people. Hinduism is almost... Uh, exclusively in India. 97% of all Hindus live in India. Um, some other ethnic religions we have, Confucianism, Taoism, Shintoism, uh, and Judaism. Um, Judaism is an Abrahamic faith. It is kind of the basis of both Islam and Christianity. Um, there's about 6 million, uh, I'm sorry, about 10 million uh, Jews worldwide, about 6 million of them in the U.S., about 4 million of them in Israel. Actually, sorry, clo closer to 14 million total, 6 million in the U.S., 4 million in Israel, and 4 million scattered elsewhere. Um, so uh, origins of these religions, again, uh, Buddhism, we talked about Siddhartha Gautama. Islam traces its lineage back through Abraham, but also the last prophet, the prophet Muhammad. Christianity is based on the life of Jesus, who is supposed to be the son of God. Um, Hinduism did not have a specific founder, but there are. Uh, it's the only one that we consider polytheistic thousands of gods, um, but you don't have to worship all of them. Um, a lot of it is dependent on your caste and where you are from within India. Um, we also talked about things like ghettos, which originally were city slums that were designated for Jewish habitation back uh, in the, um, uh, back during like the Roman Empire and around that time period, and then eventually reused uh, by the Nazis uh, prior to World War II. Um, with diffusion of religions, uh, again, you had... Uh, Judaism, which began kind of in the Fertile Crescent, the Middle East, um, and spread throughout Europe and eventually to America. The diaspora, the Roman diaspora, kind of spread them throughout Europe. Um, with uh, Hinduism, it mainly stayed put in India. Um, with Buddhism, it started in India, but moved to East and Southeast Asia. Uh, with Christianity, we started in, um, in the Middle East, uh, but largely the Christian church began in Rome and with the, uh, with the missionary work of Paul throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, and then, of course, we have Islam, which started on the Arabian Peninsula, specifically in the cities of Mecca and Medina. Um, ethnic religions don't diffuse a lot. They usually stay where they are. Um, with these, we also have uh, holy places. Um, we have different calendars. Uh, both Judaism and Islam are on a lunar calendar. Um, with uh, Christianity, um, Christians adopted uh, some pagan um, calendar dates to make it more accommodating for the new Roman population that was becoming Christian. So they adopted the winter solstice festival as a time to celebrate celebrate Jesus' birth. And they talked about the uh, the spring uh, time festi uh, festivities to be able to celebrate Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, we also talked about how uh, different groups like Hindus will uh, they will burn their dead. They will uh, then scatter the ashes uh, in the Ganges River, which helps allow for reincarnation in Christianity, especially in Roman Catholicism. You're usually talking about burial, um, specifically in, uh, in in cities. You were talking about crypts like under the ground. Uh, nowadays, we, we usually use cemeteries and that sort of thing. 
Um, I can also tell about religious influences with toponyms, with place names. Uh, again, we talked about if you see a lot of, you know, Saint this or Saint that, then um, we can infer that a lot of people were of uh, Catholic origin. Um, with religion, we talked about hierarchical diffusion, especially with the example, uh, or hierarchical religion, especially the Catholic Church. You got the Pope, uh, cardinals, uh, archbishops, bishops, priests, all the way on down um, as set up to, um, to make sure that everybody is on the same page. Whereas you have other autonomous religions like Islam that uh, is more um, kind of based on the, the Amman at the uh, Imam at the, at the mosque. Um, Judaism is another example of an autonomous religion that just kind of operates on its own within its own community and not with a hierarchical structure. In fact, most ethnic religions are um, autonomous. Um, um, oftentimes we have uh, conflicts among religious groups uh, to a degree that can be caused in some cases by fundamentalism, which is super literal interpretations of religious texts. You often have that with uh, both Islam and, and Christianity. Um, you got an example of the Taliban in Afghanistan as uh, a group of people that were strictly uh, fundamentalists and oftentimes kind of misinterpreted uh, a lot of what the Quran said. Um, religion has always been suppressed in communist countries. Uh, it's always been um, a way for people uh, to kind of uh, make sure that there is stability there. Um, religion has a tendency to upset stability. Um, so communists do oftentimes do away with religion. Um, you've also got examples of countries that have been torn apart, like uh, Ireland, where the majority of people in Ireland are Catholic. And then you've got Northern Ireland that is Protestant. Um, so there have been many issues there as well. Uh, going along with that is the last part of our culture unit uh, with ethnicity. Um, so with uh, ethnicity, a couple important terms. Ethnicity is the identity of a group of people who share the cultural traditions of a particular homeland or hearth. Then we've also got race, the identity of a group of people who share a biological ancestor. Um, most common ethnicities in the U.S. Uh, are African Americans, Hispanics, Latinos, Asian Americans, and finally American Indians. Most common races uh, are you know, white uh, and black uh, for the most part. Um, you've also got different subgroups within that. Um, people tend to want to cluster uh, near each other uh, regionally with ethnicity, particularly in neighborhoods, in urban areas. You also, in the South, you find a lot more um, African-Americans in the Southeast. Um, you fi find a lot more uh, Caucasians in the North. You find a lot more Hispanics in the uh, Southwest. You find a lot more Asian-Americans on the coast. Um, African-Americans tend to be more urban, while uh, whites tend to be more suburban. Um, it's kind of a mix with Latinos, but uh, a large part of the Latino-Hispanic population is urban as well. Um, I can see it neighborhood to neighborhood in a lot of cities. Again, a lot of cities that have high immigrant uh, rates um, will have kind of ethnic communities where these different groups will uh, meet with one another. They will have, you know, share religion, share food and other cultural traditions and that sort of thing. Um, we talked a little bit in this, this unit about the concept of white flight as African-Americans migrated north uh, during the... Great migration to northern cities. A lot of white people uh, left those cities and left and moved to um, the suburbs. That's where we get blockbusting, where real estate agents would only sell to black families in one area, white families in another area, and kind of separate them out. Uh, we saw that legally um, in South Africa in the form of apartheid, which had legal separation of the races up until 1991. Um, 
couple other important vocabulary terms here. Uh, nationality, the identity of a group of people who share legal attachment and personal allegiance to a particular country. Uh, a nation state, a nation whose territory corresponds to that occupied by a particular ethnicity, which has been transformed into a na nationality. A great example of that is Japanese in Japan. Nationalism, loyalty and devotion to a nationality. Uh, centripetal force, an attitude that tends to unify people and enhance support for a state. Centrifugal force is one that pulls people apart. Uh, Multi-ethnic state, a state that contains more than one ethnicity. Um, we had uh, some of the largest multi-ethnic states were uh, countries like the Soviet Union, uh, now Russia. Uh, the United States is a multi-ethnic state. Um, ethnicities clash uh, a lot of times because of um, religious reasons. They clash because of sharing the same homeland, sharing the same religious sites, uh, and that sort of thing. Also in this unit, we talked about ethnic cleansing, the process in which a more powerful ethnic group forcibly removes a less powerful one in order to create an ethnically homogeneous uh, region. That can uh, be mass deportations. It can also be uh, extermination, um, which we also, uh, you know, with, with the Holocaust, uh, with the, um, the Jews in, in Germany during World War II, um, so that's also called uh, genocide when you are trying to wipe out an entire ethnic group or group of people from the face of the earth. Um, also in here, we talked about the concept of balkanization, the process by which a state breaks down due to conflicts among its ethnicities. And that refers to the Balkan uh, Peninsula where you had Yugoslavia, um, a country that encompassed multiple ethnicities uh, and it broke down because of ethnic conflicts, religious conflicts, linguistic conflicts. And so balkanization describes that, um, that breakdown. All right. And take a quick break here, regroup, um, and then we'll move on to uh, units four, five, six, and seven. All right, and we are back. Uh, unit four, political geography. Um, a couple keywords here, state, an area organized into a political unit and ruled by a sovereign government. It occupies a defined area on Earth's surface and has a permanent population. Uh, sovereignty. It states independence of internal affairs from other states. It has the right to operate uh, under its own affairs. Um, within this, we also talked about uh, city-states, very small states like Monaco, Vatican City. A city-state is a sovereign state that comprises a town and the surrounding countryside. Um, talked about colonialism, effort by one country to establish settlements and impose this political, excuse me, economic and cultural agenda on an uninhabited territory. Um, Talked about boundaries, an invisible line marking the extent of a state's territory. Uh, we talked about shapes of states, compact states, corrupted states, elongated states, fragmented states, and perforated states. Um, compact states are small and they're relatively equidistant. Um, corrupted states, oh, sorry, compact states aren't always small. They just don't have little pieces of land going off of them, but they're equidistant from the center. Um, corrupt states have a little uh, piece projecting off of them, like. Uh, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, um, Thailand. Uh, then we've got elongated states with a long, narrow shape, Chile, Vietnam, fragmented states that have discontinuous pieces of territory like the United States or Indonesia, perforated states that completely surround another state, and there are only two, uh, South Africa and Italy, which completely surround other states. And we talked about landlocked states that are that don't have any direct outlet to an ocean. We talked about frontiers, the zone where no state exercises complete uh, political control. Um, a unitary state, a state that places most of the power in the hands of a central government. A federal state, a state that allocates strong power to units of local government within the country, like the United States. Talked about gerrymandering. 
process of redrawing legislative boundaries for the purpose of benefiting the party in power. Um, let's see some other vocab in here. Uh, we talked about terrorism, the systematic use of violence by a group in order to intimidate a population or coerce the government into granting its demands. All right, so that's all the vocabulary. Uh, going back through some other stuff here. Um, talked about how, uh, you know, like obviously the United States used to be a colony of Great Britain. Um, so we understand colonialism. Uh, started with European missionaries establishing colonies. Uh, started with governments that wanted to access more raw materials. And then others that wanted to increase prestige for that country. We call that God, gold, and glory. Um, with boundaries, we talked about physical boundaries like mountains, uh, deserts, rivers, uh, that sort of thing. We also talked about cultural boundaries, like geometric boundaries, uh, mathematical lines drawn on a map, usually based on latitude and longitude, uh, religious boundaries, language boundaries, um, relic boundaries, boundaries that are non-functional but still uh, exist to a degree, like the Berlin Wall. You can't really see it, but there's still kind of a cultural boundary there. Um, uh, gerrymandering, again, kind of takes away um, uh, the ability of democracy to function uh, as it benefits uh, usually the party in power and kind of hacks uh, other voters of one type into a different area. Um, we, we have seen more of a balance of power within countries. Uh, we started to see that with the uh, League of Nations, which was ineffectual um, after World War I. It was supposed to help prevent another world war, and it didn't. Um, after that, we got uh, the United Nations, um, which uh, has a permanent security council with the U.S., uh, Russia, China, Great Britain, and France. All of them have veto power uh, within the uh, United Nations. Um, we have other organizations like the Organi Organization of American States, which is all the countries in the Western Hemisphere. You've got the EU. Um, those are all examples of supranational organizations. Uh, organizations that exist above the level of the state. Um, EU is more of an economic uh, purpose for cooperation. Um, you've got trade agreements like NAFTA as well. Um, we've also seen terrorism increase uh, in recent years as uh, you know, technology has expanded. Um, it's helped uh, terrorists been able to increase their footprint um, around the world. Um, some feel that, uh, that they are being attacked by Westernization and Western values and that sort of things. Um, so some states uh, will fund terrorism. Uh, for example, the Libyan um, dictator Muammar Gaddafi used to do that. Uh, the Taliban did that in Afghanistan with har harboring al-Qaeda. Um, the United States uh, hunted, down, hunted down members of al-Qaeda in Afghanistan after 9-11, uh, um, trying to uh, eradicate the, the threat there. And we have been in Afghanistan ever since. It is our longest, uh, longest running war. Um, the United States considers uh, several countries to be state sponsors of terrorism, uh, Yemen, Sudan, Syria, North Korea, Iran, just to name a few. All right. Um, moving on to, oh, sorry, within that, uh, we forgot to talk about the EEZ, the exclusive economic zone. Uh, nations that have coastlines have sovereignty out to uh, 200 nautical miles beyond their continental shelf. Um, and if EEZs overlap with other countries' EEZs, then it's up to those two or possibly three countries to, or more to work it out. We talked about the South China Sea and the Spratly Islands um, with some of the issues with EEZs in that sense. Uh, moving on to Unit 5. Um, in Unit 5, we talked about agriculture. Um, so uh, some important vocabulary. Um, we talked about subsistence agriculture, the production of food primarily for consumption by the farmer's family. 
which is about commercial agriculture, the, the production of food primarily for sale off the farm. Uh, we talked about shifting cultivation, uh, characterized by slash and burn agriculture, uh, where you uh, clear a field by slashing the vegetation, you burn the debris, um, you take that field, which is called a swidden, you wear it out for a couple years planting stuff, and then you shift to a new location. Um, we talked about agribusiness, uh, the many facets of food production, not just isolated family farming, but the relationship between uh, big business and agriculture. Uh, we talked about pastoral nomads uh, who used to domesticate animals and move across places like North Africa and the Middle East. Um, we talked about intensive subsistence agriculture uh, in high-density areas like uh, Southeast Asia and East Asia, usually with uh, double and triple cropping in wet rice areas. Um, we talked about livestock farming, dairy farming, grain farming, livestock ranching, where we give people more space, or sorry, we give animals like cows more space to roam free ranching cows rather than uh, kind of growing them um, in like a factory. Uh, Mediterranean agriculture uh, with uh, wheats and vegetables and fruits and olives and wine and that sort of thing. Um, fruit farming, truck farming, uh, getting the fruits and vegetables to the market very quickly uh, so that they don't spoil. Uh, plantation farming, which is done in LDCs like subsistence agriculture, but it's actually for sale in MDCs. Um, so usually things like coffee and bananas and oranges and that sort of thing. Um, Within this, we also talked about the von Thunen model and the idea of access to a market and the cost of transportation and living close to a city. So the city is in the middle. The things that spoil quickest or the most expensive to transport are closer to the city, like market gardening and dairy. And farthest from the city is the stuff we need more land for, and it's less expensive to transport, like grain and animal grazing. Um, we talked about sustainable agriculture, the practice that preserves and enhances environmental uh, quality. Uh, we talked about desertification, where um, we can where we can overuse land, overgraze animals, and overfarm, which oftentimes leads uh, to the expansion of desert regions like the Sahara. Uh, going back a little bit to dive into some of those things in a little further depth, um, most human beings on the earth practice subsistence agriculture. Again, that is feeding uh, the farmer's family. Uh, so most countries that are LDCs are definitely practicing that, while MDCs are practicing commercial agriculture. Um, most, uh, countries that are MDCs have less than 5% of their workers that are farmers compared to close to 50 or even higher percentages in LDCs. <clears throat> Commercial agriculture makes use of heavy machinery and pesticides and fertilizers and that sort of thing. Um, remember we had three different agricultural revolutions. Uh, the first one for the first time we domesticated plants and animals, which allowed for a food surplus, which allowed us to form cities and civilizations. Then with the second agricultural revolution, we had more mechanized farming, which created a further agricultural surplus, which meant that we didn't have to have as many farmers, which meant those farmers moved to the cities looking for work, which meant that our industrial capacity increased. And then finally, we had the third agricultural revolution, also known as the Green Revolution, um, which increased use of pesticides, heavily mechanized farming, fertilizers, uh, GMOs, and that sort of thing. Um, okay, let's move on to unit six, which is industry and development. Um, some important terminology with development. A development is the process of improving the material conditions of people through diffusion of knowledge and technology. Uh, we've gone into uh, more depth about MDCs and LDCs. 
Uh, we talked about literacy rates, uh, the Human Development Index, the official scorebook that the UN uses to classify countries' development as distinguished by economic, social, and demographic factors. Um, we talked about different types of jobs, primary sector jobs that are involved in agriculture, secondary jobs that are manufacturing, tertiary jobs that are provision of goods and services, quaternary jobs that are um, usually advanced education uh, degrees, insurance, banking, government, that sort of thing. And then we've got quinary um, which is usually uh, supranational organizations like the UN, CEOs of businesses, and that sort of thing. Um, let's see, some other things we've got on here. Uh, we talked about the GDI, the Gender-Related Index, compares the level of development of women uh, with that of both sexes, along with that, the gender empowerment measure compares the ability of women and men to participate in economic and political uh, decision-making. Um, we compared two types of models you can develop through self-sufficiency, where countries like um, to build up trade barriers, uh, countries like the Soviet Union that had five-year plans and um, uh, what's that farm, collectivized farming and that sort of thing. Then we have de development through the international trade approach that focused on Rosso's model uh, with traditional society being step one. Stage before countries started to develop, a large number of their population is engaged in subsistence agriculture. Uh, stage two, the preconditions for takeoff. At this stage, a group of elite uh, begin to organize the economy and create infrastructure for future manufacturing and services. We have private privatization of uh, land. Stage three, the takeoff, rapid growth uh, by certain industries. Um, stage four, the drive to maturity. We are starting to modernize. We're starting to diversify our economy. And stage five, the age of mass consumption. Uh, the economy shifts to the tertiary and quaternary sector, consumer goods, and that sort of thing. Um, according to Rosto, um, sorry, within, uh, this unit, we also had talked about Wallerstein's model, which was the difference between LDCs and MDCs. Um, according to Wallerstein's model, some of the problems with Rosto's model are resources are not distributed, uh, unevenly or evenly causing some countries to be left with little internally to sell to MDCs. Um, world trade, uh, has been, um, slowing in, over the last 20 years or so. Um, LDCs are continuing to become indebted to MDCs, so that's why some LDCs, especially smaller ones, definitely are buying into more of the development through self-sufficiency approach rather than the international trade approach. Um, we also had uh, industry within this unit, and some important vocab there, uh, the Industrial Revolution, the period between 1750 and 1850. Transformation, manufacturing, productivity, and socio-political systems occurred. Um, that happened first in uh, Great Britain, diffused to United States, Germany, and places like that, uh, before eventually starting to diffuse to the rest of the world. Um, um, most industry was distributed in MDCs up until the 1960s. And then those regions started to de-industrialize with the new division of labor, as we saw more of those factory jobs leaving places like North America and going to places uh, like Asia and South America. Um, we talked about break of bulk points, the locations where transfer among tra multiple modes of transportation is possible. Site and situation factors. Site uh, factors are land, labor, and capital. Uh, all three production factors the site encompasses. Situation factors involve transporting materials to and from a factory seeks to minimize transportation costs. Um, with situation factors, we talked about bulk reducing industries and economic activity in which the final product weighs less than the inputs in a bulk gaining industry and economic activity in which the final product 
weighs more, consumes more volume than its inputs. Uh, so you're going to be closer to your market if you're bulk gaining. You're going to be closer to your resources if you're bulk reducing. Um, we also said about agglomeration as more companies that are similar to one another like to be located closer to one another, to share capital uh, with one another, to share uh, labor um, with one another. It benefits the consumer and it also benefits the producer. Um, some countries like to engage in trading blocks that help protect their economies. It's international uh, economic coalitions designed to boost the economic well-being of its members. For example, NAFTA, uh, for example, the European Union. Um, and then again, uh, the new international division of labor, the selective transfer of unskilled jobs to LDCs while retaining the highly skilled and managerial positions in NBCs. Again, in the United States, we've seen our primary and secondary jobs decreasing, and we've seen our tertiary and quaternary jobs increasing. All right, um, that takes us up through unit six. I'm going to take one more pause here, and then we will wrap up with unit seven. <coughs> All right, this is the final segment. Um, of our review for the AP exam. We're going to be talking about Unit 7. I don't know if you've made it this far through 53 minutes of this already. Congratulations. Um, with Unit 7, we focus on services, specifically for uh, services in cities. So Chapter 12 de deals with services. Chapter 13 deals with cities and urban growth. A service is any activity that fulfills a human want or need and returns money to those who provide it. Um, we talked about consumer services, provide services to individual consumers, uh, business services that, that facilitate other businesses, and public services that are provided usually by the government. Um, we talked about clustered rural settlements, settlements where a number of families live in close proximity to one another, um, which often happen in places like New England, and then the dispersed rural settlement, uh, which is places like the Midwest with the... Um, uh, Township and range uh, format. Um, we talked about central place theory, a market center for the exchange of goods and services by people attracted from the surrounding area. Central place theory was a concept that was come up with by a man named Walter Christaller. Largest cities have the most services with the largest range, and their range overlaps those to smaller settlements, which are spaced at even intervals between the megacities. We broke that down looking at um, D.C. Uh, having a larger market area than Leesburg, which has a larger market area than Ashburn, which has a larger market area than Ashburn Village, uh, and so on and so forth. That market area is also referred to as the hinterland, the area surrounding a service in which customers are attracted. Uh, within that market area, you have the range, the maximum distance people are willing to travel to use a service, and the threshold, the minimum number of people needed to support the service. Can that business or can that service uh, stay in business by having enough people that go to uh, use it. Um, so the optimal location for a business is one in which it has the most number of people within its range with a minimum driving distance without overlapping the range of a similar service and losing out to a competitor. With that, we also talked about the rank size rule, um, where a in a given country, the nth largest city contains one over n the population of the largest city. So the second largest population would have half the population of the largest city. The third largest city would have one-third the population of the largest city, and so on and so forth. We also have the primate city rule. The largest settlement in the state has more than two times the population of the second largest city, in which case the city is referred to as a primate city. Um, so we generally uh, tend to have services that locate in cities. In the ancient world, it just made more sense because that's where um, most people were. Um, so that's where the market was, and people from the countryside could come in and use uh, those services, they had um, 
public services there, like walls and uh, defensive structures and an army. Um, today, we have public services like schools and roads and bridges and water and that sort of thing. Um, we also talked about basic and non-basic industries. And basic industries that primarily export to consumers outside the settlement must bring in capital from outside the settlement. Non-basic industries are enterprises whose customers live in the same community. Um, we talked about the central business district and why services cluster down there. The CBD is the area of a city commonly referred to as a downtown. Retail services tend to be there. They're high range and high threshold. Um, there are high land costs in the CBD. So um, oftentimes uh, we see skyscrapers being built to accommodate for the lack of land. We don't see factories in cities anymore. Factories have located to, relocated to rural areas make um, better use of that land area out there. Um, we've also started to see, uh, especially in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s, people and uh, services leave cities as more people suburbanize with the invention of the car and the um, interstate highway system. Um, we start to see a lot of those services leave cities. Um, also in this unit, we get urban patterns in the growth of cities. So urbanization, the process by which the population of cities grows by an increase in the number of people living in cities and or an increase in the percentage of people living in cities. Um, most people in MDCs live in urban areas. Uh, the United States, we became more urban than rural in the 1920s. The world has just recently in the last 15 years become more urban than rural. Um, within cities, they're usually large in size. They're high-density places. They have uh, a diverse uh, social hierarchy, um, lots of different services, lots of different people. Um, we've talked about uh, different definitions of a city. In we've talked about an urbanized area in the U.S., the central city, and the surrounding built-up suburbs. We've talked about metropolitan statistical areas, the U.S. census official method of measuring the functional area of a city. It includes an urbanized area with a population of at least 50,000 people. Um, we also talked about overlapping metropolitan statistical areas, specifically the Boswash Corridor, which is kind of a continuous city that we actually live in from Boston all the way down to Washington, D.C. Um, we talked about different models in growth of cities, the concentric zone model that basically said that around the CBD, there is industry and slums, and there's the working class zone, then middle class, and then commuter class, and these circles that emanate out from the middle. There's the sector model uh, created by Homer Hoyt. They said we do have those different areas, but they are not in rings. They are in different sectors, almost like a pizza. And we have the multiple nuclei model that says that uh, we do have a CBD, but there's no distinct pattern. There are different uh, pieces. There's um, industrial suburbs and uh, residential suburbs and things that pop up in different places around different cities. Um, we also talked about how European cities, uh, rather than all the money locating to the suburbs, like in American cities and European cities, are located in the CBD. So you have more people of wealth in the CBD than you do of the suburbs. So they grew kind of opposite of Americans. American cities also grew with the car, whereas European cities grew with the train and the bus and public transit. We talked about squatter settlements, which are on the outset skirts of many LDC cities, especially in South American countries. Uh, you got the central plaza and the CBD in the middle. But on the outskirts, you have squatter settlements where the poor are clustered. The settlements often lack running water, schools, electricity, mass transit, anything like that. And people are often living there without paying any rent. Um, talking about why cities have problems, uh, filtering the process by subdividing homes by successive waves of increasingly lower income people and those homes getting increasingly run down. 
Redlining the practice of some banks drawing lines on a map to identify areas in which they will refuse to loan money. Usually redlining is racial. Um, we talked about urban renewal as certain businesses and areas through gentrification and things like that. Uh, new urbanism tried to uh, revitalize urban areas. We talked about public housing, government-supported housing, in which low-income tenants must pay 30% of their income in rent before the government covers other costs. We talked about the underclass, a common term referring to inner-city residents because they are trapped in an unending cycle of economic and social problems. And annexation, the process of legally adding land area to a city. Uh, many low-income inner-city residents lack job skills because they never completed high school, because they, those services are often inadequate in inner cities. Um, most low-skilled jobs aren't downtown anymore. They've moved out to customers in the suburbs uh, where the customers utilize those services. Um, so that has led to, oftentimes, gentrification and some more issues with inner cities. Um, suburbs also have problems. We talked about the peripheral model, which, which su suggested that urban areas grow because of this ring, this beltway. For example, us with 495 that have grown around inner cities. Off of the beltway, we see edge cities, areas that develop along the ring road or nodes of consumer business services like Tyson's. Um, as those areas have spread out, uh, we've also seen the density gradient spread out, which means that uh, in the United States, we get places like Sprawl, um, which have uh, vastly spread out um, the population around the country. Uh, I have to hit pause here one second. All right, sorry about that. Uh, Derek Planey and Lawson Calhoun uh, interrupted me, so you can blame that on them. Uh, so the density gradient changes as one leaves the inner city. Again, um, we talked about how it has spread out as the suburbs have spread out and sprawled. And sprawl is a progressive spread of development over the landscape. Um, because of the invention of the automobile, interstate highway system, and Americans uh, valuing of you know, independence and that sort of thing, sprawl has become more common in American cities as people commute every day. Um, most people live in the suburbs spend anywhere up to 2.5% of their entire lives commuting to and from work. Um, it's caused resources to, resource prices to spike. Um, suburbs have seen their taxes increase as more people live there. You need more roads. You need more water services. You need more police. You need more schools. And so the issues that people try to escape from the inner city are oftentimes just following them to the suburbs, which is why we started to see a lot more people move back towards cities. Um, suburbs in the uh, in Europe have uh, green belts, which are rings of open space, um, because suburbs are confined to certain areas and they're much more clustered than suburbs in the United States are. Um, we also talked about smart growth, the legislation and regulations to limit suburban sprawl and preserve farmland. Again, that's mainly been seen in European countries rather than in America. All right. Um, I'm sure there's plenty of stuff that I have left off, uh, but we are close to an hour now. Um, if you made it all the way through, congratulations. Um, good luck on the test tomorrow. You guys will all do great. Please make sure to read your FRQs multiple times before you start to answer so you know exactly what you're answering. Um, and best of luck to everybody. I can't tell you how much I appreciate um, you guys this year. Uh, this is by far my um, favorite subject to teach. And um, having this many sections of it just makes it uh, that much more awesome. So thank you guys for taking the class. I hope everybody does great. And um, best of luck.